So our world is filled with lots of ordinary time, right? Conventional, normal, ordinary days that then get broken up by defining moments. You know those times when an ordinary Monday is no longer an ordinary Monday and every generation has a moment or two when something happens and you remember where you were. You remember where you were when that thing happens and we can go back in the past depending on how old you are, but like, do you remember where you were when JFK was assassinated or when MLK was killed or do you remember where you were when the Challenger blew up in 1986, or where you were when the planes hit the towers in 9-11, or even more recently, do you remember where you were when COVID shut down the world, or when George Floyd was murdered, or again, we have these moments in time that get etched into our collective memories and minds when um, something, something's happening, significantly happening here, these defining moments. They alter the course of history. Oftentimes, you know it's a defining moment because we measure time in the before and after. What was life like before that? What is life like now after that? So we have these um, in our country, we have them in our world, but we also have them in our lives. You, you have these defining moments, these before-after encounters, significant things that happened that you mark time differently because you've been changed in that experience. You've been changed in that season, in that moment. Often we want a defining moment of thrill, winning the lottery, getting accepted to the dream school, fairy tale romance, but oftentimes the defining moments of our life, if we're honest, actually have more to do with tending to our wounds and our pains. Those defining moments of loss, job loss, someone dies, difficulty, relational strain. Today we get to watch a defining moment in the life of Jacob. And my hope and prayer is is that we get to watch his story and his defining moment unfold, that there's something in his defining moment for us too, to see what God may be up to in your life and in your story. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to Genesis chapter 32, Genesis 32, 22. Again, for the past several months, we've been in this series. We've been looking at the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Most recently, we've watched Jacob, who's the younger twin brother of Esau. We've watched him stumble his way through this meandering path of deceit and trickery and lies and deception, running away from home. But today, this this moment, this story, something happens in Jacob's life that is this defining moment, and he is changed. So Anita did a great job last week setting us up on the cliffs of uncertainty. And today we get to see what happens next. So here's uh, Genesis 32. I'm gonna do a little reset before I dive into the story. I know not all of you have been with us all summer long. So here's a little bit of the recap of Jacob's life. So some, some 20 years before this moment, Jacob ran away from home. He actually fled home 
because his brother was going to kill him. So he, he tricked his way into the family blessing. He stole the family birthright for a bowl of soup. His home life really was in shambles, and his brother wants to kill him because all that went down. That's how much hatred there was in the home. So Jacob, again, 20 years before this moment, he left home. He left the promised land. He left his family. He went far away, way up north to the area of Haran. He ended up finding extended family. He found Uncle Laban's house there. Again, there's a whole story in that, but he, in engaging in Laban's area, he ends up, twisted plot, two wives, two female servants, a gaggle of kids, 11 sons at this point, and lots of wealth. So in many ways, life has been good for him away from home with Uncle Laban. But then God calls and tells him to return, to go back home. So again, 20 years have gone by. Jacob is on his way to see his brother, the brother that wanted him dead. How many times had Jacob teased that situation out in his mind? How many times had he seen Esau's hairy face in front of him? Again, Anita covered this so well. Jacob, on his way back home, is freaked out. He's stressed out. He's envisioning worst-case scenarios. His stomach is in knots. He's greatly afraid. Even though he has the promises of God, even though God told him to go back, we still see Jacob doing what Jacob does best, which is scheming. So he knows that he's about to see his brother, and he's doing all the stuff. The beginning of chapter 32, even though God has shown up, and this is God's camp, He's being self-protective and he's scheming and he's plotting and he gets news that Esau is on his way with 400 men and it pushes even more fear buttons. So he sends messengers ahead to try and get a sense for what was going on. He divides his flocks and herds into two camps and his thinking is, well, if they get one of them, maybe one of the camps can get away. He's strategizing his escape. He sends a peace offering ahead to his brother to soften the blow. 220 goats, 220 rams, 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, and 30 donkeys. Last week I was sitting next to Cameron May and he said, in a partridge in a pear tree. Because it felt like. He's just like, all these things he sends on ahead. Thinking... If the first wave of gifts doesn't soften Esau's heart, maybe the second wave will. Maybe the donkeys will put it over the top. Maybe he'll welcome me if he gets the right gift. So Jacob is desperate. He's trying to figure out what's going to happen. How does, how does this come together well for me? How do I escape alive? How does he not kill me? And he's doing all of his scheming. So here's the story then. Genesis 32, 22, it says the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. 
So as if Jacob hasn't done enough to soften the blow and self-protect and scheme, to me, this is his worst move. Now, some may say, well, he just wanted some time alone to think, and I, I can appreciate some alone time to think. But I think this is a cowardly move. Not only does he send messengers, divide the camp, send bribes, now he's putting his wives and children ahead. I think, thinking, surely he won't kill women and children. But instead of saying, wives, children, behind me, he's like, yeah, you guys go ahead. And he puts them out in front. I think he's being cowardly. And Jacob goes back across the river. He is alone. And for the night, in some sense, he's hiding by himself. So the drama is there. He's put all the chips ahead. (laughs) Bribes, messengers, gifts, family. He's put everything ahead to soften the blow. And he's there that night in the darkness. Can you imagine what that was like for him? What was it like for Jacob in that place that night? My sense is that it would have been eerily quiet. His family's gone. His children are gone. Servants are gone. Animals are gone. All he hears is the sound of his beating heart and maybe a rumbling in his gut. What's going to happen with Esau? What's going to happen tomorrow when the camps collide? Is he still angry? Will he still kill me? 20 years is a long time, but some grudges last a lifetime. What happens next? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? What could go right? So again, he's planning, worrying, scheming, dividing, cowering. You ever been there before? Trying to do the stuff to manage my life and my camp and my problems. I'm trying to figure it all out, and I'm still freaked out. So this thing that happens, this defining moment that happens next, is actually an all-night wrestling match. And it happens in six movements. I'm just going to go ahead and throw up the next slide. I'm just going to walk through this defining moment. It's the surprise, the wound, the hold, the confession, the name, and the reminder. We're just going to walk through the story as it happens. Pay attention to what happens to Jacob in this moment. Because the same kind of stuff happens to us. First of all, the surprise. Verse 24, Genesis 32, 24. Jacob was left alone. We read that already. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Like, I thought he was left all alone. Like, this is a paradox of a verse. Jacob sends his wives, two wives ahead, servants ahead, children ahead. He's all alone. And a man, you're like, where did that dude come from? And there's a lot of questions in the story. Who is this? Surprise attack. Who's the man? We don't know yet. We're just told that there's this a man who shows up and wrestles Jacob for a very long time until the break of day. Jacob's not expecting anyone. We're not expecting anyone. And this guy shows up. Who is it? 
The only person that maybe it could be would be Esau. Maybe Esau snuck around and came and did a sneak attack at night. But he would have known if it was Esau, because Esau was really hairy. He would have known the hairy arms of Esau. This isn't Esau. Who is it? Unnamed person, sneak attack, surprise out of nowhere. Now, my daughter Kelsey, her spiritual gift is scaring people. (laughs) She loves, she finds no greater delight in life than to make me jump. My fear is that she will think now that it's biblical. (laughs) Jacob's worried about Esau and the future and tomorrow when, surprise, this person shows up and wrestles him. Number two, the wound. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. It's really a bizarre encounter. So Jacob's all alone. This unnamed man jumps Jacob in the night, and they start wrestling for hours. Like, what is happening? And this is not some fake WWE-type material. This is honest, raw, rough wrestling for hours. But then something happens that doesn't make it a fair fight. In the midst of their grappling, all of a sudden, the unnamed person reaches down and zaps Jacob's hip, dislocates it out of joint. You ever had a dislocated hip? I haven't had a dislocated hip. I've had two dislocated knees, kneecaps. Worst pain of my life. Unfortunately, we now have shared that with my son with his dislocated knees as well. But my first knee dislocation, it was out for like five hours while they took me to the hospital and they gave me a quote to the doctor, from the doctor, I've given you enough morphine to knock out an elephant. And I was like, well, this elephant still feels it. It hurts. I need more. Dislocations hurt bad. And somehow his hip is put out of joint as he's wrestling with this person. And the wrestling match changes. Up to this point, Jacob is wrestling to win. He's wrestling to get on top of this guy who jumped him. He doesn't know who he is, but you jump me, I'll beat you down, I'm gonna win. When Jacob all of a sudden now has his hip out of joint, something changes in the wrestling match. He realizes that he is wounded. He realizes that he's with someone who's greater than he is. He realizes a dose of humility It's amazing how necessary humility is. And his hip's out of joint. And he's like, I'm not going to win this one. And he's wounded. And he's humbled. Jacob isn't used to losing. Jacob is used to getting his way. And he has this encounter where his hip is touched and he's wounded. Which goes on to number three then, the hold... Verse 26 says, then he said, again, this is the unnamed person. Let, then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see how the strategy has changed. Jacob has been fighting for the win. His hip goes out and now he's like, I'm hanging on. 
I'm not letting you go. It's weird. After the wounding, this thing shifts. He goes from being on the offense to being on the defense. And he goes from wanting to have the takedown to just holding on. And then something changes for this unnamed person. It's really weird. He's like, no, let me go now. I need to, it's like Cinderella at midnight. Day has broken. I need to go back. And Jacob's like, no, I'm not going to let you go. I'm holding on. I may not win this thing, but I'm going to hang on to you until you what? Until you bless me. It's interesting. This story for Jacob comes back again to blessing. Here he is. He's, his whole story unraveled over the blessing. And he got the family. He got his father's blessing. He dressed up like his brother and put on goat skin. And he lied and he made a meal. And he said that he was Esau. And he got his father's blessing. It's 20 years later. He's got wife and kids and family and flocks and herds. And in this moment of wrestling, in this season of uncertainty, he's still saying, Would you bless me? I won't let go until you bless me. What does Jacob want? After all these years, after all this time, after all this scheming, he's still after the blessing. Like, isn't that what this whole stinking story's been about? Him getting the blessing. And maybe it's guilt, and maybe it's shame, or maybe it's regret or remorse that he got it through deceit. But there's desperation. There's this humbled, dislocated hip Jacob grappling with an unknown stranger saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I don't know who you are, but you seem to be really important. And you seem to be stronger than I am that you would be able to dislocate my hip that way. And I'm not letting you go because there's something I need from you. The story goes on. The fourth thing in this defining moment is the confession, verse 27. So he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And so this unnamed person says to Jacob, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Which again, you read and you're like, that's weird. That's normal. They were wrestling for hours and now they're getting around to the introductions. What's your name? It can be the easiest question that we do in pleasantries and greetings with strangers. Hey, what's your name? What's your name? My name's Paul. Nice to meet you. It could be the easiest question to answer. But for Jacob, this has been the question that's been a problem his entire life. When he steals the family blessing, who does he pretend to be? Esau, his brother. When he gets the blessing the first time from his dad, he, even, he answers this question. His father asks him, who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. And now this time around, he's wrestling with this unnamed person. He's like, oh, you want blessing? What's your name? What's your name? Simple question, profound question. And Jacob answers it. You can go back a slide. Jacob answers it, and he says, he says his name. <laughs> One of the first times in the story that Jacob is finally honest. It's as though something's happening in this moment of wrestling where he's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done scheming. I'm done manipulating. 
I'm done lying. I'm just going to tell the truth. Jacob. This is a big deal. This question is not because the unnamed person didn't know his name, in my opinion. This is an opportunity, an invitation for Jacob. It's a test to see if Jacob is really ready to move on, if Jacob is really ready to change, if Jacob is really ready to grow, if Jacob is really ready to be honest. And again, go to the next slide. One scholar points out, Jacob confesses his sin with one word, and that's his name. In telling the truth, he finally is ready to deal in honesty and to deal in truth. What's your name? Jacob. Oh, good. Oh, good. You haven't been willing to say that all along. You've been, try, you've been busy trying to be someone else. You've been busy grappling and scheming and getting somebody else's name and somebody else's blessing and somebody else's birthright. And now you're actually ready to be honest. Oh, good. We can deal with that. It's confession. It's a confession moment. By speaking his name, he speaks the truth and he answers honestly. The word confession, it's a church word we use, a Bible word. The word confession means to say the same word. Homo legeo, homo same, logos word. To say the same word. To say the same thing that is true. To say, the, to say the same word that God already knows is true. That's what it means to confess. To finally stop playing the game. To finally stop manipulating. To finally stop being deceitful. To finally stop doing our game and say, you know what? Actually, I'm willing to say what is actually true. That you already know, but it's true. What's your name? Jacob. Wow. This is profound. with confession, begins the process of surrender. And with surrender, my friends, comes transformation. Next part of this defining moment, the name. So finally, after all these years, you have this sense of acceptance that's happening in Jacob, the surrender of Jacob. He's finally ready to own who he is, and he's finally ready to stop pretending, and he's ready to stop dressing up in somebody else's clothes and goatskins and stealing somebody else's identity, and he finally claims his name. And in that moment, here's what happens. In that moment when he answers his name correctly and honestly as Jacob, God then gives him a new name. How ironic is that? How like God is that? For years, he's trying to have a new name, and he's stealing somebody else's name, and when he finally speaks the truth and confesses what is true about his name, then God's like, great, let me give you a new name, a better name, a name with meaning, a name with purpose, a name with identity, a name with all those things that you've been looking at for your whole life. Verse 28, then he said, Again, the unnamed man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. The name Israel replaces the old name. The old name Jacob means heel grabber, deceiver, trickster. And he's been doing that his whole life since he came out of the womb grabbing for his brother's heel and says, no, here's your new name, Israel, the one who strives with God. 
And that name, Israel, if you read your Bible, gets used over 2,500 times in the scriptures. Over 2,500 times the name of Israel is given. Because not only is it Jacob Israel, but then his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and through that line comes Messiah Jesus. But the new name happens a lot. Now at this point, like Jacob's finally kind of piecing things together based on the conversation. He's like, yeah, this is not your ordinary encounter. This is not just another night of wrestling. And that of wrestling down by the river. Who is this? What's happening here? What does this new ma- name mean? Israel, one who strives with God and has prevailed. And his wheels are spinning here. Verse 29. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. <laughs> I give you my name. What's your name? But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And I know that for years, scholars have argued, who is this masked man? Who is is this person who is wrestling with Jacob? And some say it's an angel. Some say it's the angel of the Lord. Some say that this is the the God-man, maybe a pre-incarnate visit from Jesus. I won't settle that for you today, but I will point out that after this encounter, Jacob is forever changed. He wrestles with God. He says, I'm calling this place (laughs) Peniel. I've seen God face to face here, and my life has been delivered. But as the new day dawns, Jacob doesn't skip away. Why? Because his hip is dislocated. And then there's this reminder. Next verse, verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So he wrestles with this unnamed God-man all night long. His hip is dislocated. He finally confesses his name. He gets blessed. He gets renamed. The sun breaks, and Israel limps his way away. Esau's still coming, by the way. That's next week. But this really is an interesting picture. Again, up to this point in the story, if I may, Jacob's soul, like his inner life, has been out of joint his entire life. But his physical hips were fine. But his entire life was with a limp. Because inwardly, he had this thing that he was always trying to do it his own way. His soul was out of joint, but his body was whole, and he has this encounter where now his body's out of joint, but something's been healed inside of him. And so he walks away with this limp, but you get the sense that he'd rather have the outward limp with the inwardness being healed 
than to continue the rest of his life walking fine, but still experiencing it not being right on the inside. And to this day, it says, to this day, the the descendants, the offspring, the family, the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, they don't eat the sinew of the thigh of the hip socket. And again, there's a lot of questions in this. Cynics may say, well, that was kind of rude of God to wound him. That was kind of rude to dislocate his hip. Seems cruel. Leave the guy limping to meet his brother. It's meant as a gift. It's meant as a reminder. Because every day, the rest of his life, when Jacob limped, he remembered. And the descendants of Israel remembered. Oh, don't eat that. Why? Let me tell you the story. You ever heard the story of Jacob in Israel? This gift. Not just random or arbitrary, but a beautiful reminder of the monumental nature of this defining moment. If you may, a food-to-faith connection that the generations that, that were to come would always remember what God had done. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing, to have a food-to-faith connection, to forever remember a moment of wrestling and surrender and transformation and a new name and an inheritance? We should do something like that. And so with that, the scene is complete. The surprise, ah, who is this? Who's on my back? The wound, dislocated hip, the hold, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. The confession, what's your name? Jacob. Ah, ding, 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 you're finally on to something. Now that you have your uh, old name right, let me give you a new name and let me bless you. And the rest of your life, you're going to walk with a limp that you may remember that you have been changed and you are not who you used to be. And you're not forever defined by your past. And I want you to tell the story to the generations to come that there is a God who is willing and able to change our broken, deceptive, sinful ways. Now again, there's lots of questions. If you're very analytical, if you're analytical, you're like, well, who is that man exactly? And why does he choose to wrestle? And if this is God, then why did it take all night for him to win? Why didn't he just go, wah, boom, put him down on his back right away? Why did they wrestle all night? Why not just squash Jacob? Why can't he make Jacob let go? Why touch his hip? All great questions. But the biggest question I have from the story is the question, who wins? Because this story is actually all about the moment when God surprises us and breaks us and heals us with a blessing and a new name. This story is a story about change. It's a story about the deepest ways that God knocks the self-sufficiency out from underneath us to lead us to surrender because his desire is to bless us, but before there is blessing, there is always a breaking. This is the way of the kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's death that leads to life. It's breaking that leads to blessing. It's the way up is down. 
So many of us, though, aren't aware that this is actually what God is up to in our everyday lives. That we think that we're just, I don't know, having a bad day, having a rough week, having these nagging problems. I love how one scholar puts this. Oh, this is, I think this is Tim Keller. It's God who has leaped into your circumstances. It's God who has assailed your life. It's God struggling with you to remove something from your life, to break you of pride, to remove your self-centeredness, your lovelessness. It's God grappling with you to, turn you to turn you from impurity and pornography. It's God trying to grab you from the pursuit of money. It's God wrapping himself around you, breathing on you, in your face, demanding to be central in your life, demanding that you look at him and yield. And this is where change begins to happen, and it's not a one-time thing. I think it happens over and over again, our, our willingness to confess and speak the truth and yield and surrender. Winning happens in the kingdom when we lose, when we yield. Oh God, not my will, your will be done. God has never expected our lives to be one unbroken string of success. If you think that's what Christianity is, you're sorely mistaken. This room is not filled with perfect people. This room is not filled with people who have had an unbroken string of success. But rather, he's waiting for us to finally be honest to finally speak the truth, to finally confess, to finally give up, to finally surrender, and to yield to the love that has been there all along, the love that is perfectly expressed in the person of Jesus. Who wins the wrestling match? I think it's both. Jacob wins by losing. The story offers us lots of questions. I'll just throw these up before we end today. What truth do you honestly need to face? What truth do you honestly need to speak? Like, what's the question God's been asking you for a long, long time that you haven't been willing to be honest about? Where do you need to own your Jacob name and say what's really going on? Or are you wrestling against God and fighting to surrender to his way and his will? Next slide. What is God breaking or what does God need to break? What is he wounding in us that he may heal in us? What needs honest confession? Where is there need for surrender? What is your name? What is your changed name? Lots of questions to ask out of this story. Lots of questions to ask. Jesus is the greater Jacob who was willing to take on flesh and wrestle, and he drew near and engaged fully on our behalf. And Jesus did not just have a broken hip, but a broken body. And his invitation for us is into a new covenant that is centered on his body broken, his blood shed, so that we may forever have a new name and a new identity and a new way forward remembering the one who has overcome 
Satan, sin, and death in our place. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Another faith-food connection passed down through the generations for the people of God to remind us how this thing works. Winning through losing. Salvation through sacrifice. Blessing through breaking. Might you be willing to speak truth to God today where it's needed? Might even today, I don't know, like in God's wisdom, in the grandness of your story, may today be a defining moment where something changes. God is still in the business of surprise attacking us when we least expect it, when we least expect it to invite us to another place of confession and surrender to know his blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for these stories of old written thousands of years ago and yet speak so much to our lives too. So I pray for my friends here in this room. Pray that we would be attentive enough to pay attention to the rustlings inside of us. To pay attention to your invitation, sweet spirit, today. To not avoid anymore, but to engage you and to find the freedom in life that happens through surrender, through confession. May you change us, oh God. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin. Thank you don't, you don't leave us in our broken patterns, our broken families, but you're inviting us to something more today. May there be a yes of faith. May there be a yes of faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.